Hello, listeners. You may have already noticed that you are not listening to the previously advertised episode, Legacies vs. Tribunal. Unfortunately, I blacked out for a period of exactly 24 hours, and when I awoke, I had no knowledge of either television episode. Until my memories return, this will be marked as a lost episode. To make up for your loss, we are providing you with the Season 1 finale of Babylon 5, Chrysalis, versus the DS9 Season 2 finale, Jim Hadar, exactly a week early. We hope you enjoy. Why do I keep having dreams of being tortured? Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9, the greatest podcast about the two great 90s space station shows. This is Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing today, Matt? Doing really great. Uh, excited about these uh, the two fantastic episodes of science fiction television in general to talk about this week. Uh, we're have some good discussions. Yeah, yeah. We timed it where we hit the uh, season one finale of Babylon 5 and the season two finale of Deep Space Nine in the same episode. And it, you know, it kind of it almost feels like we're ending the first season of our podcast, such as it is. Which, ta-da, we will be. We'll be hitting starting season two uh, after our recaps for this season. Season two, season two. There uh, there shouldn't be any break, but uh, chain, big things coming. Watch this space. <laughs> All right, so we're today we're covering the like we said the Babylon Five season one finale Chrysalis, which is episode twenty two, and it originally aired on the twenty sixth of October nineteen ninety four, and then we're watching the DS Nine season two finale uh, episode twenty six Jim Hadar, which uh, debuted on the twelfth of June nineteen ninety four. All right, and the episode Chrysalis, this is the one where Garibaldi gets shot in the back. Yeah, so in uh, the A-plot, we have Garibaldi's down-below snitch Petrov warning him of a mysterious plot to kill a man, but he conveniently dies before he can uh, tell Garibaldi who this man is. Garibaldi eventually runs down that it's another presidential assassination attempt being run out out of Babylon 5 against Luis Santiago, but uh, Garibaldi's deputy shoots him in the back before he can inform Sinclair of the plot. And then in the B-plot, we have the Narn regime and the Centauri Republic and the persons of Jakar and Malari again at each other's throats. This time it's over Narn incursions into Centauri space in Quadrant 37. But what breaks the stalemate and the Centauri's planned capitulation is that Morden and the Shadows offer Malari another deal. In the C-plot, Sinclair and Delenn undertake big life transformations while both must sift through Ambassador Kosh's cryptic pronouncements. Ah, uh, Chrysalis, pretty major episode for this show. I'm going to I'm going to say a lot of stuff going on here. You know, this is definitely a must watch for season one. Uh, after a couple of, you know, episodes we've we've been through that are not quite what we need to. You didn't have to watch them, but this is a, a, a must, wouldn't you say? 
Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, if you were only going to watch, um, I would say three episodes of Babylon Five season one, you'd probably do the premiere, um, the uh, signs importance, which as we talked about, it kind of the one that snaps the concerns of the show into focus, and then you'd probably want to do this finale. I think those would be the three most essential Babylon Five season one episodes. Yeah, so let's kind of just break things down a little bit. And that A plot, of course, Garibaldi does get shot in the back. And you were correct in that convenient plot contrivance where the where Petrov dies as he's about to say the name of who he's out for. Really to hold to to hold to genre conventions, he should have like started to scrawl the name in like blood with his finger and died before he, uh, yeah. he finished like you know, only get like the first two letters out, kinda like Sherlock Holmes studying Scarlet style. What if he spelled it's President Santiago? And he's like P R S Or if he just wrote S and they thought it was gonna be Sinclair. <laughs> oh, that would be nice, yeah. Yeah, if it's just S and they thought it was Sinclair. Yeah, yeah. no, that's good. That's yeah, good. That, that was the only that's the only real complaint I can say about this episode, Bob, is that that plot piece. And everything else was beautiful. It's a little convenient, yeah. I do appreciate though how there's a lot of useful parallelism in this episode because you have the parallelism of Petrov crawling to Garibaldi, and then later you have uh, Garibaldi crawling into the mm-hmm. Zucalo after he's been shot. And then you also have that sort of reoccurring motif where Sinclair comes to Jakar to try to reach out to him, but it's too late. And, you know, they kind of both recognize that in the scene. And then later, um, Delenn wants Sinclair to reach out to her for more information, but, you know, because of the presidential assassination and because of Garibaldi being shot, he gets too busy and he forgets. And so it's like you've got the two missed opportunities with Sinclair. So even though the even though there's a lot of like narrative convenience in this episode, I did appreciate how um, JMS crafted that that narrative parallelism. Yeah, that was really interesting, and uh, I've watched this episode a couple of times now, and it still kills me when Garibaldi crawls into the uh, into the Zukalov, and there's a (laughs) and there's this like couple from like straight out of the '90s that find him. They're like at the they're at the New Year's party or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, the twenty the twenty two fifties are really big on the '90s energy, aren't they? Yes, '90s party '90s party attire is coming back in, in, in on Babylon Five. Overall, the the A plot is, is, is phenomenal because I'm I'm really concerned now. Like, okay, the president has been assassinated, the uh, vice president has come into power. I do remember we mentioned in a previous episode that the telepaths or the psychor were on the side uh, or were in support of this uh, of the vice president. Yeah, they and the broke vice president conveni- their uh, charter and endorsed him. Yeah, yeah, and the vice president just conveniently gets off of the uh, of a uh, space force. Is it space force one? What's it called? Uh, Earth, Earth force, force one. one. Earth yeah. force one just conveniently gets off Earth force one before the assassination or before the explosion. Wait, what do we what do we see in here? Is this going to come back and kick us in the butt? Oh, definitely, definitely, and uh, it'll it'll pick up pretty quickly uh, next season, if I recall correctly. So yeah, no, you, there's definitely there's a lot of momentum for this plot initially. It'll it'll eventually slow down and get put on the back burner. But for now, like what's going on with uh, the new president Clark and with the uh, the plot to assassinate the former president Santiago is uh, is going to be a big concern for at least part of season two. And I want to throw this out here about Ivanova. I got I've got more to add to my board here. All right, I know that one of the deputy. Is the one that shoots Garibaldi in the back. 
I got that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we obviously mm-hmm. there was a trader there. Yeah. Okay. A trader I don't think we'd seen before unless I maybe we had. And I no, he shows he's, he's actually shown up a couple of times. He's like, oh, he the, has? Okay. yes, he has like throughout the season. There are little hints. I did notice him a couple of times, but he, he doesn't stand out, but he's there. Uh, OK. And on top of that, I think that getting the materials and things they need for this assassination are actually going through Babylon 5. Who controls the traffic in Babylon 5, Bob? Dun, dun, dun. Who controls the traffic? I I will say that uh, if you're right, that does uh, somewhat excuse the sort of annoying trope that all presidential assassination plots must be run through Babylon Five for some reason. Because you know the first one, the first one went so well from Babylon Five. Why not do the second one from there? I'm just saying it, it didn't work the first time. They tried it again. Who's the one controlling the traffic? Who's letting people come in and out? It's Ivanova. I'm telling you right there. Yeah, it's 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 a possibility. It's a possibility. Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm just telling you, it just keeps lining up. It keeps lining up. Every episode, even the crappy episodes we've had to watch, have had something that points in her direction. You just really don't trust Russians, man. Keep an eye on her. Late '80s and early '90s uh, pop culture trained you in a very specific direction. Yes, that's when the show came out. That's in the '90s. It's, of course, it does. That's, it makes sense. <laughs> All right, so beyond that, all right, there's the A plot. We, we've talked a good deal about it. I don't, I don't think there's anything else we need to mention as far as uh, the, the assassination of the president and everything that went along with that. Uh, but the, the B plot is almost like a repeat of something we've seen before, but with much more devastating consequences. You know, the Narn regime and the Centauri Republic are going to be at each other's throats again, possibly, because I have a feeling Jakar, even though that Jakar states that it's probably some new villain or new uh, race that's getting involved with this, Malari's still responsible because he's the one that made the deal with Morden. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's Centauri. So I have a feeling that there's going to be some friction between those two and it's going to kind of bleed over into the next couple of seasons. Between the, between the two different powers, do you think, um, do you think the Narn should be more afraid of the Centauri based on what you've seen this season, or do you think the Centauri should be more afraid of the Narn? Well, I mean, the Centauri are in bed with, with I guess, the Shadows is what I'm going to... Is that's their name, correct? Yeah, the Shadows, okay. yeah. So the Centauri are in bed with the Shadows because Morden just keeps going to Malari and is like, hey, we will make a deal and murder all these, all these people from uh, all these Narn just to, uh, you know, make sure everything's okay with you and that you can continue to be this uh, great political figure within your republic. <laughs> I would be more afraid of the Centauri at this point because they're in bed with uh, Morden in the shadows. Yeah, and the episode doesn't necessarily heavily emphasize this, but I think you're supposed to see this as something akin to, like, a Pearl Harbor attack or um, the attack um, that, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the battle, that the Japanese launched on the Russian Navy in the, in the uh, Russian-Japanese War, where it, I think, you know, the Narns still have resources and still have fleets, but I think you are supposed to see this as a pretty devastating loss. Like, I think Jakar says they've lost 10,000 of their best warriors, mm-hmm. and it seems like the Narn were planning a kind of, not a war effort exactly, but a sort of major strategic push in that region against the Centauri. And so losing these forces, it seems like, has compromised the Narn's uh, war-making abilities, at least somewhat. And Malari does have some guilt over what happened. Uh, you can tell that it, 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 you know, towards it, it, within the episode when he goes to kind of confronts Morden about it. Like, you know, I, I didn't expect you to do this much you know, damage and kill that many people just to, you know, solve my problem. And, I mean, 
Morden just doesn't give a damn. He'll just do whatever. <laughs> I don't, this is probably going too deep and I'm probably not supposed to know this yet, but is Morden like, is, is he human or a shadow? And he meets with some shadows, right? But you can barely see them. Yeah, we have that kind of cool scene where he's like communing with the shadows. He's like sitting in a, a, you know, what I presume are his rented quarters while the shadows are around him. Uh, When I first watched the show, I assumed Morden was just like a shadow taking human form. But and I don't really think this is a spoiler to say exactly. But over the course of the series, it becomes clear that Morden is just a human who serves the shadows. Okay. And. There's an elaborate backstory to that that the show hints at, and apparently one of the prequel novels goes into much greater detail about like why and how Morden is serving the shadows. Um, but I, I would say, like my friend Jr. when he was watching the show, I think he always is unlike us. I think he always assumed Morden was a human. Um, and you know, I I, th- I think I mentioned this back in the Science Importance episode, but I, I really enjoyed Jr.'s description of Morden as just another finance bro, which yeah. I hadn't really <laughs> seen. But yeah, with like the short sleeves and like the open blazer, yeah, he's really got like you know graduated Sigma Chi Alpha and uh, now is uh, working for Bear Stearns Energy. <laughs> yeah. So how do the shadows get on the station? I you know they have ways. <sighs> Ways that was the other means. thing I was... I'm like, once again, Ivanova's in charge of traffic. She's letting the shadows on. She's letting these people get on with bombs and stuff. Well, I mean, clearly, clearly the shadows are only visible when they want to be, right? Yeah, but how does their ship just pull up to the station and dock without somebody knowing? Well, more, you'll find out, uh, I believe, next season, maybe maybe third season, okay. you'll find out that Morden comes on the station like any other person. Okay. And I guess the shadows just follow him. Like the shadows are with him is the implication I've always taken. Okay, that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah. R- right on his back or something. Like... One one point I did want to ask you to follow up on about Malari and Jakar is how much do you think you can even hold Malari responsible for what? Uh, Morden and the shadows do. I mean, on the one hand, he does ask for it, but on the other hand, he, you know, he, clearly he doesn't expect the scale of what's done. And also in that initial scene he has with Morden, even though Morden did return the eye to him, it just seems like Malari has like, you know, he can't imagine that this one random like douche douchey bro could do something on this scale, right? So in in a in a way, like I find. Malari's position kind of sympathetic like it's in that first meeting it's like he's still not even taking Morden seriously yeah I, I mean I get that but you see what he did the first time around when he was able to recover the eye and he destroyed that ship so Malari knows he's got he's got power somewhere and I don't yeah. know we don't know he doesn't know where he's getting it he doesn't know the extent of it I mean I, I guess after this I don't think Malari needs to make any more deals with Morden because you know you never know what's going to happen yeah it, it is it is kind of like that that sort of sell your soul to the devil sort of thing for, you know, wealth, power, fame, uh, you know, lust, all that sort of stuff. Although it is kind of interesting. Usually, I think in Faust narratives and other narratives where you're making a deal with a demonic force, you're more you're entering it more as like a business deal with your eyes open. Whereas Malari is kind of like gradually kind of roped into this almost as a joke, almost as a sure. Why not? I'll try it. It's not. Usually in the versions of the Faust myth, Faust is much more conscious about what he's doing and knows what he's doing, even if he later comes to regret it. So that's sort of an interesting distinction between uh, Malari and Faust. Well, that's the thing. And then when Morden actually, when, when he meets with Malari the first time, 
And Malori's like, okay, what do I have to do for this to happen? Like, what, what is, what's the catch? Morden just tells him, oh, you know, you'll owe us a favor at some point. It's real nonchalant. But you know something's going to go down later on that's going to be way more um, mm-hmm. sinister mm-hmm. towards Malari. It, it's not just going to be some simple favor. It's going to be something awful. Did you uh, notice uh, Kato's reaction upon seeing Morden when he's calling Malari? No, uh-uh. I just, it, it wasn't much. He, he just seems a little put off and a little confused. And I, I just flagged that because I, I really don't actually like the character of Viracato at all. Uh, I find him deeply annoying. All right, so we covered the B plot. Let's talk about C plot for a moment. All right, Sinclair and Delenn both taking on transformations here at this point. So Delenn has gone into her, her cocoon thing, her chrysalis, and we don't know what she's going to become. Uh, she I did think get, you've had that spoiled for you, haven't you? I mean, I have, but I mean, it wasn't really a spoiler because most of the promotional materials, DVD covers, everything. Oh, uh, okay. I know she comes but out. Let's looking, not go. Let's not go into detail since we'll see it in a couple of. Yeah, I won't go into way. detail yeah. because yeah. I mean, I know, I know she comes out of it. I know she looks different. I don't know what that really means though. So I just me, I, I I don't know what it means. But anyway, so I, she's. I will say, I at first I really disliked the way she transformed but something happened in season happens in season three and i didn't give it any thought at the time but then somebody made a point about how the thing that happens in season three parallels with her transformation and it actually made me appreciate it a lot more in in hindsight so i'm kind of looking forward to re-watching the stuff with her emerging from the cocoon of the chrysalis early next season and see if i have a different point of view about it but before she goes to enter the chrysalis or whatever, she goes. She visits Kosh because she has she has a question for him, and he has an answer. And Kosh's answer is yes. And then he removes his helmet, but we don't get to see anything. Of course, there's just this. What's blue under glow. the helmet, Matt? Yeah, I don't know what's under the helmet. I don't know. This is some blue. It, it was blue shiny light, and that was about it. You didn't see anything else. There wasn't like a head, because. I don't know. I don't know what the hell it's supposed to be. Did it freak you out how the, the sort of helmet part kind of raised on Kasha's encounter suit? Not really, because we saw the same. We already saw that uh-huh. in uh, the one where the alien thing like inhabits a suit. It opened the same way. Then, oh, too. Um, yeah. It wasn't Death Walker. That's the one where Kasha intervenes. But it's the one where the gangster has an, a Vorlon encounter suit and he's hiding the... Uh, the Centauri nemesis creature that wipes your mind in it. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. It opened the same way in that episode. So I wasn't too freaked out about that, but I don't know. I thought it, I thought it, cause I thought it like clearly wasn't that serious in a way in that earlier episode, like to me, and maybe this was just me. I can't remember how I, it felt when I first watched that, that episode a few years ago, but when I was watching it after already knowing where the episode went, it was like clear to me that wasn't Kosh. That was just someone using the suit and it didn't feel that sinister. But, you know, having heard your kind of theories about how Kosh might be snake-like or serpentine, um, I, I did think, you know, looking at it from that perspective, there was potentially something unnerving about, like, the way the helmet on the encounter suit raised. I don't, I don't know if yeah, I'm Yeah, it's like a snake raising it, up. Yeah, I didn't think, well, yeah. thanks, Bob. Now you freaked me out. Oh, great, yes, great. It, it does I'm look glad. like a snake's head coming up. <laughs> great, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. I hate snakes. 
so we don't we don't know what Delenn sees, but we do know that it like comforts her, gives her resolve, or steals her to undergo this transformation. So well, that's that's what we do know. But we don't know, also don't know what her question was to Kosh to begin with. So was he like? Yeah. Was she like, "Hey, are you a such and such underneath that suit?" And he's like, "Yes." <laughs> he's like, "She's like, well, prove it." Like I don't know, or is it? You know, he answers some question there. I'm not sure if we ever know exactly what the question was. But I, I think with what I already know about the relationship between the Minbari and the Vorlon, such as it is, I, I don't think it was a question about Kasha's nature so much as it was m more a question about, like, the prophecy that Kosh and Delenn kind of believed they're fulfilling, if that makes sense. Or was she just like, can you take your helmet off? And he's like, yes. Then <laughs> he goes... It's that easy. I, I really do appreciate that, you know, it, she makes it sound like when she's talking to Lanier that she's crafted such an elaborate, you know, thought out uh, question that must be precisely repeated to Kosh word for word. And then, you know, in Kosh, in classic Kosh fashion, only replies with yes. We had, we got Delenn about to transform. Uh, we'll see that, I guess, next season. But then with Sinclair, I was kind of... Uh, since this is my first time watching, you know, watching Babylon 5, I do know Sinclair goes away in the next season. He does. And there wasn't really anything that, there was no finality here in this season finale with him. There won't, there won't be in the season two premiere either. It's, it's very, it's, it's given a little bit more attention, but I would compare it to the way like Dr. Pulaski pretty abruptly replaces Dr. Crusher on TNG. And then likewise, Dr. Crusher pretty abruptly replaces Dr. Pulaski in season three of TNG. Like it's, it's, it's yeah. dealt with a little more than that, but not much more. But he just seems like such an important character in the season to the, or important character for the show, because I feel like he is the one. It seems like it's just hard for him to leave. And I understand that it had to do yeah. with behind the scenes type stuff, you know, with the actor having some issues. It's, it, I don't know. I feel like we're, he's just going to leave and I'm going to be like, eh, okay. I, I think the way that works actually turns out better, though, because like they don't, they, they won't deal with it maybe as much as a viewer of season one might want, but that, you know, they'll still deal with Sinclair in season three of the show to an extent. And I, in some ways, I think, like, it's kind of interesting to, like, uh, diffuse the protagonist role between Sinclair and Sheridan, who we will see, uh, you know, in the season two premiere. I, I think in some ways that gives it some interesting effects. And, like, some of the things they do with Sheridan, I don't know that they could have done with Sinclair and vice versa. Okay. All right. So I guess I'll have to look forward to, to meeting a new character and getting to know them. Yeah, I, I think after having rewatched this season for the third time, I think I'm pretty firmly in the camp that I appreciate Sheridan more as a as the lead character than I do Sinclair. And uh, for everyone listening, we're going to be recording a, a season one recap uh, coming up soon. And, and when we go back into that, I'm, I'm kind of going to want to deep dive into some of these characters and just I'm going to give my first imp my impressions of these characters through season one. Look forward to that. Uh, Bob, on the other hand, he's he's seen all five seasons and then everything else that came along with it. So, I, I, not not quite true. I have one TV movie <laughs> left to watch that I will probably watch in the next few days. All right, so. so so probably by the time we record, Bob will be like uh, <laughs> he'll know about everything with every character and have to keep his mouth shut. So, <laughs> and, and, and in fairness, I will have forgotten a lot of it. Yeah. 
Uh, but that's the plan. But right now, I do want to kind of just recap real quick, uh, give you an idea of what I'm seeing at the end of this particular se- uh, season, so that we have the wrap up. So, so at the end yeah, of the I episode, we we yeah we know the Narn are probably going to have to go to war against the Shadow People or the Centauri. That's hey, just call them the Shadows. The Shadow. You don't like Shadow People? That's not good. No, I don't Does like. That sound- <laughs> that's not a good name. All right. I mean, it's not as good as Mole People. I'll say Mole. that. <laughs> All right, Delin is in a cocoon, or chrysalis, oh, or whatever. people. Yeah. Delin's in a cocoon. Uh, Malari is having, like, second thoughts about his deal with Morden because he knows that it's Morden's way more powerful or has connections to people of power. Uh, the Earth President is dead, and he is succeeded by the Vice President. Uh, Sinclair is actually engaged to be married, which we didn't even mention before, but I, I feel like that's kind of a, a mute point at this time now that we know that he's leaving and... There's not going to be some awesome wedding episode. I don't think we'll even see Catherine in season two. Maybe I'm misremembering, but I, I don't think we'll even see her. Um, ultimately, like her, her and uh, Sinclair's romance has to kind of be finished. I think in novels and short stories, because I, like I said, I I think this is the last time we see her. If we if we do see her in season two, it's only like at the very start. And uh, you know, Garibaldi may die. We don't know if he's going to die from his uh shot to the back. And more evidence that Ivanova's a traitor, Matt. Don't forget. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's plenty of evidence there showing that she's a traitor. So there's a whole lot of stuff that, like, move into season two. And I, I was glad they did that. They didn't just tie up every loose... It wasn't like most shows where they kind of tie up the loose ends. Going into next season, we're going to have a ton of stuff to, like, explore and figure out what's going on. And just a lot of different pieces to the puzzle. I mean, that's one of the real achievements of Babylon 5 is it's... One of the first shows to, because I mean, there were shows before it like Wise Guy or like Crime Story that did a lot of like, they did a lot of extended storytelling within a season, but there wasn't that much between the seasons. And then you had shows like Dallas, which did like crazy kind of soap opera cliffhangers at the end of a season. But, you know, it was more just kind of like a Mad Libs. There wasn't like a, a vision of like a coherent story. So, in that sense, like uh, maybe I'm forgetting something obvious, but it feels like Babylon Five is really one of the first, if not the first, shows to be telling like a long form story, like across seasons, not just within seasons. But I mean, I, this this episode got me really psyched for season two. I think it's I think there's so much they're gonna have to figure out that season two is gonna be great. It's a good Did setup. You, uh, did you think it was noticeable or interesting that you don't really have any setup for Dr. Franklin or for uh, uh, Talia Winters? Yeah, I'll, we'll, let's let's save that conversation okay. for the, uh, for the yeah, season recap because there's a whole lot of information I want to go over with that. Uh, <laughs> both of those characters are uh, interesting. Uh, I'll, we'll save we'll Fair. save that. So should we transition over to DS9? Yeah, let's talk Jim Hadar. Uh, this is the one where the Dominion actually gets interesting. So thank you for that, DS9 writers. <laughs> so in the A plot, we have uh, Cisco, his son Jake, Quark, and his nephew Nog on a planetary mapping field trip in the Gamma Quadrant, all in order that Nog can pass uh, Miss O'Brien's class. But the quartet wind up making first contact with the Jim Hadar and the Vorta, 
And then in the B plot, we have uh, the Jim'Hadar soldier Talak Talan informs DS9 of the Jim'Hadar's capture of Cisco and of the Dominion's destruction of other Federation and Bajoran ships and colonies in the Gamma Quadrant. So Kira and uh, Captain Keo of the Odyssey, a Galaxy-class starship just like the Enterprise D, must launch a rescue mission into the Gamma Quadrant. Let me go back to your description of the A plot. One thing that Bob left out uh, that's extremely important here is that Cisco originally wanted to go on a trip with Jake. That was the whole reasoning behind it. So I don't know. Is it that important? It is extremely important. It shows that relationship <laughs> between father and son. That wasn't like it. they're right. just like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's an important part of DS9. Fine, fine. I'm bad at writing summaries. <laughs> no, you're not bad at writing summaries. You just leave out some of the uh, important pieces. All right. So let me do uh, with that being said, though, let me ask you something else up, up front. Why do I hate any subplot that involves like kids solving problems that are way out of their league, like way over their actual ability? Is it because I'm a teacher and work with students and work with little kids? Because I cannot stand the Jake and uh, Nog like flying the uh, runabout and trying to get help. I, I, I hated that. I hated every bit of it. What was your opinion? Oh, man. Of that? So I think it might be a generational thing. Like my boy Noah, who's slightly younger than us, like hates that sort of shit too. He also is not really big on coming of age narratives in general. And I, I think we both kind of dislike coming of age narratives. Is that fair? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So I, I, my theory provisionally would be that something flipped in culture in the nineties. And so like old millennials like us and Noah don't like coming of age stories, but young millennials and zoomers do. I don't know. Maybe you could blame it on Harry Potter. I mean, certainly there were like big coming of age narratives in pop culture before Harry Potter, like star Wars is a coming of age narrative in a sense, but there's at least a lot enough other stuff there to kind of distract you from how annoying and awful Luke Skywalker is. And, I don't know, maybe it's also because we were exposed to, like, the awful teenage characters on shows like Star Trek The Next Generation and Sequest DSV, where, you know, just there's nothing worse than the precocious teenage character who gets shoehorned into a science fiction TV show. Thank God Babylon 5 didn't have that. Yeah, okay. That, that explains a lot, actually, because anytime, like, even recent shows where, like, kids are the main, the main protagonist, I, uh, Stranger Things... I cannot watch oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Stranger, well, Stranger Things is just like a pastiche of like seven better things. And it's like when I watch it, I'm just like, well, why wouldn't I watch the better stuff? Why do I want to watch this? Um, I, I also think probably the fact that we're both teachers does make us more cynical about it. I mean, I, I, I'll speak for myself, at least, and say... Uh, it, contrary to popular opinion, the kids are not all right. They're uh, technologically inundated sociopaths, and they're not going to be saving anything, least of all uh, the planet. So, uh, yeah, just just know that going forward. Well, yeah, and I got kids like, uh, you know, Jake and Nog's age that can't, like, find their own bus. So <laughs> flying a runabout, it's not <laughs> I don't see it happening. Yeah, that that said, I, I think I'm not as hardline on this as you, because I actually found the Jake and Nog stuff pretty charming. I think I think partly I find it charming because Jake and Nog aren't really written in the sort of like 
kid genius mode that like Wesley Crusher from The Next Generation or Lucas from Sequest DSV are. They're more written in like a sort of more realistic kids with realistic personalities, I think. And so granted, it's a little absurd and a little silly, but I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed it more or less. I didn't think it was amazing, but I enjoyed their adventure here more or less. And I thought it was a, an amusing, if very unlikely, beginning to Federation Dominion relations. I, I can't. I couldn't stand it, and I really hope we don't have to watch any more episodes like that. I don't remember any off the top of my head, but I'm so sure is this sure. the reason that you're dreading Star Trek Prodigy so much? Probably, honestly, honestly, yes. I think it is why. I just don't think I, I enjoy that whole young kids doing stuff. I, I have reservations about it, but I think I can also. I, I think for franchises I really love, like Star Trek, I can overcome it. I'm off to give it a shot just to see what it's like, mainly because I need something else to watch on Paramount Plus. Yeah, yeah, you gotta, you gotta do something to justify that Paramount Plus mm-hmm. <laughs> subscription because there's not a whole lot else. Like New Twilight Zone is fun, but I, it's there's not a lot of it. So uh, I totally had forgotten that the first time we see the Vorta, um, they use, or rather she uses a telekinetic sneeze. That was uh, that was something. Yeah, that doesn't show back up again, does it? Maybe it does, but I don't think in any sort of major or sustained way. I didn't remember anything about that until she did it, and I was like, what the hell is the Vorta? What is she doing? And, um, okay, it was some kind of, like you just said, a telekinetic sneeze. Which, I mean, I, it kind of <laughs> could be like Banshee, like an X-Men, like maybe like his power or something to some degree, but that's kind of making it cool, cooler than it probably really yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> that... The recent issue of uh, Cable I read, uh, I think it was from two weeks ago, there was a very funny line where one of the Stepford Cuckoos, the one that's dating Cable, I think it's Esme, and it's it's young Cable. It's not old Cable, so it's not weird. She's dating teenage Cable. But I think it's Esme as talking to Jean Grey, and she's just being bitter about how she only has uh, telepathy and not telekinesis, and I thought that was a really funny line. Yeah, there were a bunch of really good lines in this episode, too. Did you, did you pick up on any? Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed the uh, arguments between uh, Cisco and Quark about Federation versus Ferengi values. Did you? What, what were your overall responses to Cisco and Quark's developing relations? I, I, I enjoyed it, honestly. The, I like the idea, the whole, the whole premise that all Quark wants to do is advertise, like, products on their monitors. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, that's, uh, that's something de- Quark that's something a Ferengi or Quark would definitely want to do. Like that's, I could see that. And then deciding to go on this whole camping trip with them or, or really pushing himself into this camping trip with them just so he could try to convince Cisco to change his mind. is just right up there with Quark with a, with a Quark plot. Well, and it's really funny that like Quark has this like actually pretty heartfelt, like defensive Ferengi values you know, in distinction to Federation values. And, you know, he's like, look, we're better than you. You know, we never engaged in slavery or genocide or interstellar war. But and he seems sincere about all of that. But also the fact that he has this very obvious, very crass uh, commercial motive of maybe I'll convince Cisco to let me advertise on the station. Just the the combination of the sincerity and the angle there felt very, very quark and very appropriate. I, I enjoyed that. And at one point, you know, Cisco's like, hopefully Jake is finding out, finding a way to save us, you know, or, or go to trying to get back in contact with the station. And then Quark is like, oh, if I taught not well, he's just hiding somewhere where he should be. You know what I mean? Like you can see the yeah. difference between and Quark's not wrong. You know, that's probably what someone Nog's age should do, <laughs> that, you know, just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. It, 
I, I wasn't really following exactly what Nog and Jake's travails were with the runabout was very closely, which maybe was why I didn't mind it as much as you. Um, probably but so. Yeah, it, 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 did, it did seem like, yeah, probably the better strategy uh, when you're kidnapped, when your uh, parental figures are kidnapped by hostile aliens is actually, yeah, you should probably hide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's probably the thing to do if you're a teenager. Yeah. Um, one of the other things I did want to flag is that th- there's some interesting irony when Quark is kind of talking about his theory of Ferengi supremacy to Cisco while Eris the Vorta is watching them both, but under false pretenses. And it's also pretty interesting that like Quark is really down on recent Federation history. Um, you know, he's calling them warmongers. And that did make me think like, well, you know, the Federation and earth have been in a fair number of wars. I, I did a little research to confirm, and as far as I can tell, uh, Earth has been to war at this point with the Zindi, the Romulans, and four times with the Kazinti, and then the Federation has had, since uh, those Earth wars, two wars with the Klingons, one with the Cardassians, and one with the Zenkithi. So uh, what, what do you think about the warmongering Federation, Matt? Yeah, they, they are warmongers. The Quark's right. Cork's <laughs> not wrong. They're warmongers. They are. They they build big ass ships to go shoot things. I mean, then they build. Then when those don't work right, they build little ships to go shoot things. I, I don't know. I, I guess to defend the Federation for a little bit, I'm actually surprised in some ways that there haven't been more wars. Like as far as I can tell from looking at the different uh, memory alpha, memory beta stuff, uh, the Federation never goes to war with the Tholians. Uh, they never go to war with the Gorn. Uh, the Federation, as the Federation, never goes to war with the Romulans up to this point. Like, Earth had that war, but the Federation, as the Federation, never goes to war with the Romulans. Um, they only they only seem to have had one war with the Cardassians. They only had two with the Klingons, which is actually kind of surprising. You think it probably would be more? So, I don't know. In, in some sense, they, uh, they haven't gone to war with the Breen. Uh, so, in some sense, like, you know, there could have been a lot more wars. Yeah, they have a whole universe like to share. I mean, just <laughs> I just but they haven't gone to war with the Vulcans. Well, the Vulcans and the Andorians did go to war before um, before the Federation was founded, or at least they they had a Cold War. I'm not sure if it ever became a hot war or not. I can't remember my Star Trek Enterprise well enough to say that. Yeah, they're warmongers, Bob. It's just just as easy to admit. The shows would be really <laughs> boring if they weren't. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you gotta you gotta have hostile aliens. That's an important part of the genre. Yeah, if everybody just got along the whole time and everybody was just peaceful, that would be a really boring show. <laughs> Speaking of uh, hostile aliens, uh, I had totally forgotten that the first Jim'Hadar we meet, uh, Talak Talan. Uh, a, I didn't realize he was played by the guy who plays Black Lightning on the CW, Cress Williams. But B, I totally forgotten that he was basically like a fanboy of Alpha Quadrant politics. He really likes the Klingons. He really wants to fight a Klingon. He's got very fanboy-like opinions on how the Federation and Cardassian peace treaty was a total mistake. Um, I, I, I rather enjoyed this guy. I thought I thought this was a neat way to have like the opponent know a lot more about the Federation than the Federation knows about him. Kind of kind of surprised. It seems like he hasn't been he's not reused in the show and he's not reused very much in the para canon either. Yeah, it would really been a cool since he's such a Klingon fanboy, like having Worf come in in this episode to rescue them would have been awesome. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although I think we do get to see uh, some like 
Klingon Jim Hadoa rival rivalry worked out pretty well. Like maybe in season five, I think. Oh yeah, when, whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. Like when Worf and Martok and Bashir are in that camp, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's good stuff. Yeah, I think at this point, like Next Generation had just wrapped up like a few weeks before this, and I think they went straight in from like doing season seven to doing the movie. So I guess it just wasn't feasible to get Worf on for season three. They had to wait till season four after Generations was done. Did you uh did you hear Odo say maybe it's a trap and like sounded just like Admiral Akbar? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I heard him say that, but I, d- I didn't process the Admiral Akbar connection until oh, man. you brought it up. It is like it's it's like spot on. It's like he was doing an impression of Admiral Akbar. It's great. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe the real uh, truth is that Admiral Akbar is just a uh, you know a Canadian or a French Canadian or a French squid, and that's hence the accent. This is the first. Uh, this is the first time. But like this, we see a galaxy class starship, other than the Enterprise. We, it's, it seems like a, a rare thing to see. Uh, what did you think about that? Yeah, we see a fair amount of them in the background of Dominion War scenes later in the show. Yeah, but, but up to this point, yeah. I mean, you've really seen the Enterprise and just a few like. The only other one I think we've seen, unless I'm forgetting something, and I don't think I am, is the Yamato, which is Mm -hmm. destroyed in like a, I think it's a season two or season three Next Generation episode. Um, It's the one that involves the Akarans and also the Romulans. And it does kind of raise an interesting point that I, there was some like fan theory or technical manual theory. I couldn't I couldn't run it down, but I I enjoyed this theory that was arguing that the galaxy class was actually a very flawed design because um, the first three galaxy class starships we see all get destroyed pretty easily. Like the Akarin computer virus destroys the Yamato the Jim Hadar ran the Odyssey. And then, you know, we were just talking about Star Trek generations and at the end of Star Trek generations, the enterprise D gets taken out like a chump by, uh, you know, a very low powered and very old Klingon bird of prey. Yeah. I, let me say that the Jim Hadar just rushing at the Odyssey and destroying it that way, just suicide ramming it. I, that doesn't seem feasible to me. Like I, I didn't, when I watched the scene, I'm like, wow, that's, really easy to take out that ship uh i, I feel like they well, would have done like some they, kind of evasive maneuver at that point to like get away well, i but, think they'd already established that the odyssey was pretty damaged right like I, yeah. there's specifically a line where captain keo i think says put all shields into weapons or something to that effect well we also see like 20 scenes of the bridge that was basically just the enterprise yeah. D bridge, but it was like, you know, getting just they were shaking fire, yeah. and there was fire yeah. and all that kinds of junk. So yeah, you knew something bad. It wasn't in the best shape, but still, I mean, well, ramming also, a ship. Like, I mean, I think those Jim Hadar fighters are supposed to be, you know, like roughly equivalent to the defiant, which oh. you know, we'll see soon in like terms of like the amount of fire, firepower they have and like combat ability. So, you know, like even though the galaxy, is a big ship like ramming any you know it's not like ramming a shuttle into it even though i think they usually call the jim hadar ships fighters i'm my understanding of them has always been that they're more like the defiant than they are like you know like a starfighter in star wars or something that makes sense yeah i, I mean it, I, I guess it's, it's it's plausible it just got on my nerves i, I mean i guess they had I, no I shield say that of the of the three galaxy class uh ship destructions we see like the Odyssey seems to be the one that like makes the most sense and like 
seems to the do the least to support some sort of design flaw theory about the galaxy class starships whereas the way the yamoto and the enterprise d goes out just does to me seem to suggest yeah uh, not only are galaxy class starships ugly yes twitter users i said that galaxy class starships are ugly <laughs> but they're also not nearly as resilient as one would think yeah and i have to say that the uh at one point at, at the end the odyssey like one of its uh what do you call the th the nacelle one of the nacelles was messed up mm -hmm. and they uh he's like we need to get power back to that nacelle and it 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 pans to a shot of the odyssey out you know f kind of floating away and that one nacelle is like flashing a blue light <laughs> like it needs its battery charged that was so stupid. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I, I not everything is Star Trek is like you know super serious, but I mean, if I imagine if if an, the nacelle is really messed up, it should be like blown up or broken or something, not just like flashing like it's got some kind of diagnostic. It's the blue code. light of distress. Yeah, huh? yeah, it's yeah. It was so lame. It's telling you to reboot the nacelle. Why why don't you reboot the nacelle, Matt? Well, no, I imagine you're, there's you're like you're just here laughing. You're just here laughing. I imagine there's like engineers sitting there like on the other on the other side on the other nacelle like looking at it and like writing down the number of like flashes to see like how many it needs to <laughs> what they need to do so they can consult their manual. <laughs> I don't know. I, I actually thought it was a pretty cool uh pretty cool starship battle scene and I mean honestly like we really haven't gotten many starship I this is really the only significant one we've gotten uh in the show so far, right? Yeah, it was cool to see something like a, like the Enterprise get blown up. Especially yeah, before yeah. generations, so you know yeah. this was the, like when you when you see it you when you see the Galaxy class starship you automatically just think of the Enterprise even though it's a whole yeah. different ship yeah. and then you get to see it blow up you're like well, oh, I cool. also like I really love the design of the Jim Hadar fighters I think they're very mm -hmm. very cool design yeah. um, that said it, it is a little the oh we've got to arm up the runabouts and send them into battle that's <laughs> that's pretty ridiculous it makes me. It makes me glad that they go with the Defiant next season. Yeah, the, the runabouts are just not... I never liked those ships. That was never my favorite. I I liked them as kids, but I, I, I but I don't like them now. Yeah, remember when we used to collect, like, the little... They had micro-machines, Star oh, yeah, Trek yeah. ships. yeah, I love that shit. Yeah. And we used to have, like, the runabout... Like, we'd have a runabout and all this stuff. Like, yeah, I, 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 never, I never cared for it that much. Well, and the most... The most frustrating thing about those is that they weren't done in any way to scale. Like, I know you couldn't really do them to scale, but, like, the the damn runabout was, like, as big as the Enterprise D one, and that was very frustrating. Yeah, it's annoying. Like, you'd have but, I mean, honestly, you'd have to make it, like, the size of a pin needle. Well, you could you could have done it smaller without making it, like, ridiculous, you know? Like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not asking for like literal to scale. I'm just asking for something a little more than what they did. Cause it was the same way with like those awful looking shuttles from the next generation, which I, I say are far worse than um, the runabouts. Yeah. Yeah. Next generation shuttles were, I really didn't like, I don't think I've liked any shuttles. I, I was okay with the ones from the, uh, the original series, like Galileo or whatever. That one was kind of cool, but that was they, just had that nostalgic look to it. They actually get cooler with um, on Voyager. They give them a more a more tapered look mm -hmm. that I that I kind of like. It kind of more comes to a point on the front, and I think I remember like the shuttle pods from Enterprise looking good. Although maybe I'm I'm about to Google it. Maybe when I actually see it, I'll be so horrified that I'll take that statement back. 
oh no never mind the shuttle pod from enterprise looks awful i don't know what i was smoking <laughs> if anything it looks like it looks like the next generation shuttlecraft but just just like a little bubble it's oh that's that's awful i don't know yeah. <laughs> but the Vo the voyager shuttles were good at least and then we haven't seen shuttles in discovery or picard right i don't think so i don't remember any <laughs> yet yet another thing new trek is forgetting to do yeah we, i say as i pretend to be an angry fanboy yeah we forgot shuttles so all right let's move into our anything else you want to say about jim hadar before we move off to throw on the thirst watch now nah, let's move to thirst watch jakar is very thirsty and so we you shouldn't keep him waiting yeah jakar in this episode is uh is having relations with three human women Hey man, the Nar the Narn ambassador has needs. Yeah, he he's not in a well. He's been gone for like eight episodes. Is this what he's been doing for eight episodes? Just like, or maybe maybe he was doing very important, very sensitive diplomatic work for eight episodes, <laughs> Matt, and he needs a break. And uh, Natath, his aide, is a good aide and is not gonna let Sinclair interrupt his very important relaxation just to you know whine about how things should be different than they are. Yeah, Natasha just has to like sit there at a desk and like I don't know what she was doing, cutting paper or something. I don't I don't know what she was doing. She was sitting at the desk, just like I guess having to listen to all that, and then Sinclair walks in. I mean, that's got to be a weird job on Natasha's part. I mean, maybe maybe the Narn have like different ideas about sexual privacy than humans do, especially since I think they're kind of brought up as like they're kind of like marsupial type creatures, despite their reptilian looking skin. So I don't know. Maybe they just have a different different perspective on that sort of thing than we do. I guess it was it was freaky. Yeah. Or yeah. I mean, the other option is that Jakar is the world's worst boss, even worse than Andrew Cuomo, and he's making his female assistant listen to uh, him have um, a menage a cat. I guess. You yeah. Would say. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's what you would call it. Yeah. Don't, yeah. Don't rule thirty four oh, that one. Right. I do, uh, I do like uh, Natath, but it's a shame the show never really figures out what to do with her, and that's a shame. It's kind of, especially considering how much time they spend on Lanier and uh, Veer Kodo, and then eventually Kosh will get an aid too, which is very interesting. All right, so what about Deep State Watch? There wasn't, I mean, there was no DS Nine had no Thirst Watch. There, it'd, it'd be really weird if there would have been some. So let's get, let's get yeah, they were. Uh, I mean, yeah, they were just too busy for uh, Thirst Watch. Yeah, that's, um, some, that's some Boy Scout level stuff if you want to go there. But oh, well, actually, though, if you want to go into the backstory, apparently the reason Captain Keo and Dax don't like each other is that Curzon Dax walked in on Captain Keo in flagrante delecto with a, a crewman when they were all much younger. Oh. and or a crew a crew woman but yeah crew man is a yeah. generic title and uh then later curzon hooked up with that same uh, crew woman and captain keo has been bitter about it ever since is apparently the backstory for why dax and captain keo don't get along is this from a novel or something yeah yeah um, i haven't read it but it's I, I guess it's called it's one of the brave and the bold series and it yeah apparently like does actually a lot to develop captain keo's character you know, only to have him just blown up pretty quickly on a ship. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, it kind of makes him come off as a jerk. And, like, apparently, it says he goes through, like, an executive officer every six months because he's so hard to work with. All right, so what about Deep State Watch? Got some good stuff there. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I was going to ask, what, what type of presidential assassination vibes did you get off Santiago's assassination? I mean, the destruction of a ship. Uh, I mean, there was JFK. 
That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, because you definitely you you get that shot of Morgan Clark being sworn in um, on whatever ship he's on. I don't know if it's uh, Earth Force Two or a different ship, but yeah, it's it's pretty clearly meant to echo the image of uh, Lyndon Johnson getting sworn in on Earth Force One after um, after the uh, Kennedy assassination. And I mean, you know, I I'll try not to say any spoilers here, but I'll just say you know, there's a significant wing of conspiracy theories around Kennedy's assassination that blame uh, Lyndon Johnson for that. Um, I, I'm not particularly convinced by that argument, but it's a, it's a very common argument, including in like the Oliver Stone film JFK, if I recall correctly. But I, I was actually kind of put into the mind of two other, um, uh, well, you, we don't know if they were assassination attempts, but they're, they're sometimes theorized to be assassinations. Um, there's a plane crash that killed uh, Walter Ruther, who was the president of the United Auto Workers, uh, which is the union I'm a member of. And uh, Ruther, who was a very famous, like, socially liberal, democratic socialist labor leader, he was like a big supporter of the civil rights movement, like the UAW gave a lot of funding support to uh, Martin Luther King's campaigns in the early 60s. He was a big advocate for things like the Great Society and for more uh, more democratic planning in the American economy. And he was also a huge critic of uh, Richard Nixon and the Vietnam War. And so when he died in 1970 in a plane crash with a couple of other labor leaders and his wife, uh, it's been looked at as very suspicious, and some people have put it in the same breath as like the JFK and the RFK assassinations and the uh, Malcolm X and the Martin Luther King assassinations. And uh, apparently an, the altitude monitor on the private plane he was on uh, malfunctioned. And according to at least some people's versions of the report, that it seemed like the altitude monitor was like sabotaged in like seven different places or it had like seven different flaws in it. And so that like led to the crash when the pilots were trying to land uh, the private plane like by eyesight and the altitude meter was wrong. So there, there's been lingering suspicion that the um, Ruther was assassinated. Um, and he was certainly uh, not J. Edgar Hoover or Richard Nixon's favorite person. And J. Edgar Hoover had been following him for, uh, you know, and had the, had the FBI been surveilling him for like 35 years at that point. There had also been a lot of other assassination attempts on uh, Ruther and his brother, Victor, who was also a United Auto Workers leader. I think they nearly died in a plane crash um, about a year before under similar circumstances with a broken uh, altitude monitor. Like, uh, Victor had been shot with a shotgun in his home one night and, like, lost a piece of his jaw. Ruther had been beaten several times very badly and had never been able to get any sort of legal recourse for it. So it seems not unreasonable to think it might have been a conspiracy. And then the other one is actually, like, after this, um, there was a famous liberal senator, Paul Wellstone, um, who was a senator from Minnesota, and he died um, shortly before his uh, re-election. Um, he was running to for his third term in the Senate representing Minnesota and uh, died in a crash. Um, I listened to an interesting conspiracy theory podcast about that one. And some of the stuff does seem kind of weird with like how quick the FBI was on the scene, that sort of stuff. But the podcast did kind of go into some strange places and theorizing about like EMP weapons. And also the guy who was doing the podcast really seemed to like Bill Clinton for reasons that 
kind of eluded me of like, why would you think that Paul Wellstone was assassinated, but also really like Bill Clinton. But anyway, those are two, uh, two, two prominent politicians or two prominent pol political leaders who died in plane crashes under what some people have said were suspicious circumstances. So I thought that was kind of an interesting foreshadowing or interesting parallel with uh, the way Santiago dies in, uh, in this episode. But Santiago was on a spaceship. Yeah. No, Same after an airplane, Air Force One, Earth Force One. You mean there haven't been any presidents that have been killed on a spaceship? Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm just not going to. I'm not going to give you anything. You're not going to give me. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I mean, now, now we we just started Space Force, bro. I mean, you got to give it time. All you right. Gotta give it time. So. Let's talk best character, and I'm gonna do, I'm gonna tell you my best character in the in these two episodes was Quark. Uh, why, hands why down, Quark? because Quark, you had you introduced two new alien races, okay, the okay. Vorta the Vorta and the Jem'Hadar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got Cisco. You've got another captain of a galaxy class starship. You have most of the crew of DS9. You have all these different characters, but yet Quark still steals the show. Like, just everything he does just makes this episode so much better. And had Quark not decided to push himself onto the runabout and join that group, it had just been Jake and then everyone else, you know, it, it, it would not have been as good, and it would have been way, way less interesting. Quark's the one that made this episode what it is. That's actually a pretty persuasive case. Usually, I'm not very convinced by your favorite character cases, but that that's a pretty persuasive case. Oh, you don't you don't, don't like know, my I, you don't like my usual reason. I just like the character. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I don't know. In some ways, I kind of judge myself because I feel like I'm kind of following in a rut where what I want most is variety. So I it, I feel like I usually just pick like a guest star or a minor character who like amused me somewhat yeah. in the episode. Which is certainly what I did this week, because I went with uh, Talak Talan, who I thought was kind of a hoot. And I, I especially really enjoyed how he taunted uh, Kira on Ops at DS9, where he's just like, don't worry, the Bajoran colonies fought really well for a spiritual people. Oh, yeah, that, that is awesome, too. Like, it, it, that's that's a good choice as well. I, I agree. I, have you seen any of Black Lightning? I haven't seen any. I haven't, but yeah. Talak Talan, was, this, he's, he's a good character. I, I, like, I know he, yeah. doesn't, he doesn't come back later. I wish he would have. It would have been if, awesome. If they let him be like this haughty um, in that in the Black Lightning show, that would be that would be a really fun thing mm -hmm. to watch because this guy seems capable of giving a pretty good performance. Yeah. All right. Best episode, though, is going to Chrysalis. Uh, any other week of Babylon 5, I probably would have gone with Jim Hadar. But for this week, Chrysalis, there's just so much involved with the plot. Just a fantastic setup for season two. Get a couple of questions answered, a lot of new questions asked. Just good, good, good TV overall. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I, I really enjoy Jim Hadar, but uh, yeah, Chrysalis gets it, no question. All right, so what are we looking at next time? So next time we're actually going to do a little bit of a departure. Um, we're going to cover, you know, the sort of central dilemma of this podcast is I think there's 176 episodes of DS9 and 144 of Babylon 5. And so, you know, we've already skipped a lot of DS9 episodes from season one and two, and we're going to skip a few more. But um, in order to pad out that count, because uh, after season two, there's actually not a whole lot of DS9 episodes that I really want us to skip. And I think Matt feels the same way. So in order to pad out that count, we're going to look at um, a couple of Babylon 5 comics, not all of them, because 
the the two Babylon 5 sto comic story arcs we're skipping are terrible. But we are going to look at two that are pretty interesting. I wouldn't say they're amazing, but they're solid and they also do an important amount of like bridging plot or bridging things left out from the show. So we're going to look at this, uh, the first four issues of the DC's Babylon 5 comic series that gets collected as the arc called The Price of Peace. And we'll look at that while we look at a two-parter for the season three premiere of DS9, The Search, parts one and two. That's right, folks. We're going to be comparing comic books to TV shows. It's never been done before. I mean, in a way, it, it makes a lot of sense, given that they're both kind of long-form, serialized storytelling, right? Oh, yeah, it makes sense, but it's, I'm saying it's never been done before ever on a podcast. Never have comic books been compared to movies or TV. Well, I sure they've been compared to movies. Have they actually been compared to TV that much? I mean, yeah, you got think how many TV shows you have. They're based around superheroes. But most people who I'm being most facetious. People, <laughs> but most people who uh, watch the no, I want to defend the novelty of what we're doing. Oh, uh, most people who watch um, yay old CW shows don't read the comics. That's not true. Oh, I think that's totally true. That's not true. How how many people watch a, a CW show? What would you would you think like a couple million probably? Yeah, and you don't think those millions of people have read comics before? No, like how, like the best-selling comic does what? Like forty, fifty thousand. The best, and that's the. Oh, best. you mean like we? You mean like weekly like comics? Are you talking like? Are you talking like? I'm talking about any comics. How many? How many people do you think have read a Flash or a Black Lightning or an Arrow comic? A couple hundred thousand at most. I don't know, Bob. I, I, I'm telling you, people who watch the CW shows have read comic books. I mean, I'm, I know that there are some people who read comics who also watch CW TV shows, but the vast, vast majority don't and never will. Not true. Like, how, well, like actually, you know what? You know, you know, okay. I'm thinking through. Uh, <sighs> All right. I'm just going to say it. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> never mind. We, uh, we can actually, you, you're right. We could actually just end the whole podcast here if you want. Like, yeah, I mean, all of it. Like, right, we never Bob. need to do another episode. You're correct. I'm wrong. You're right. Because there are so many people that watch the damn Marvel movies that he'll never pick up a comic book ever. And it's the same way with the, with the TV shows. I think the idea, though, is that the TV shows are supposed to convince people to buy the comics, but it doesn't work that way. Oh, I, I think at this point, the comics are just, uh, what, what is the term, lost leaders? for you know developing and maintaining ip for the media for 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 media and i think it's been that way for 15 years at least well we're gonna be we're gonna be pulling up four issues of like a really old ass comic and comparing it to a really old tv show from the 90s so that hasn't been done too many times before i'll give you that <laughs> we we are pioneers in the podcast medium uh dare i say it going where no one has gone before Oh gosh, that's that's the that's gonna get cut. All right, <laughs> see us all. As long, just as long as you don't cut the part where you admitted that I was right. <laughs> that's the important part. <laughs> all right, all right. So this has been a Babylon Five versus DS Nine, the uh, galaxy's greatest podcast about the two great '90s space station shows. Uh, this is uh, Bob from Cascadia. I've had Matt from the Southland on the line. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, guys.